to be reliant on the grid working from a centralized perspective going out only is not a viable possibility for us to hit you know SDG 7. This is where there's a very nice opportunity through learnings such as from like this pilot and others where you can have uh, successfully operating mini grids which can build its way in towards and this integration is really the future of where energy is going and you know the sustainability of such is to really have a number of proof of concepts and pilots that are done which can show that there's uh, an ability to do energy trading and that when you're building mini grids of course there needs to be either an exit or a long-term business plan in mind and that was dan clink the founder and ceo of east africa power and this is the power for all podcast a forum for leaders working to end energy poverty I'm your host today, founder and CEO of Power for All, Christina Skerka, and uh, it's my pleasure to welcome Dan Klink, who I've known for a number of years. Uh, Dan has a super interesting history. He spent 10 years working in the uh, energy sector now, but prior to East Africa Power and his time in the power sector, Dan worked uh, for a number of years facilitating foreign direct investment for renewable energy in China. So we'll cover that along with a whole host of other interesting topics today. Dan, welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thanks for the opportunity to be interviewed and share our uh, passion for renewables. It's uh, great to be here and on this podcast and keep up the great work with Power for All. Oh, thanks, man. Yeah, you are one of the early adopters of Power for All, and it's it's great to be talking with you today. So just a reminder to our listeners, today we're talking with Dan to dig a bit deeper into the recently commissioned Utilities 2.0 pilot project in Uganda called Tuake. But this project involves a number of partners, including Equatorial Power, Intergrow, Power for All, the Rockefeller Foundation, and Umeme, who are working alongside East Africa Power, or EAP as we call it, and numerous others uh, to test the benefits of integrated energy, which we'll also get into a bit later in the show. But to start things off, I thought it'd be great just to dig into your fascinating background, which includes everything from living and working in China to helping to build Rwanda's gigawatt global solar plant to even constructing libraries for local communities in rural parts of East Africa. So let's get into your career journey. Take me back. What happened? How did you get into the energy sector? Was this where you expected to be? Uh, great question, Christina. How far would you like me to go back? I can begin <laughs> at <laughs> I can begin at eight years old delivering uh, newspapers and uh, ten year old being a uh, landscaper and uh, uh, running small businesses through high school to uh, eventually moving on to being a professional shoe shiner. And uh, it was the shoe shining that uh, really brought me into a passion for finance. So uh, if you want to go back that far, but uh, <laughs> I Dude, assume you, you may... have to start. You have to start at the shoe shining. How on earth did that jumpstart your career in finance? Well, but, I mean, believe it or not, at, at 15, I was uh, financially independent. I was uh, doing my own kind of business on the side of, of life at a young age. And I chose shoe shining at a country club in the South Shore of Montreal as uh, an opportunity to network 
with uh, the elite of Canada who are in the finance sector. So I studied, I uh, shined the shoes, and I did that for two years and gave me a tremendous uh, network into the who's who and what's happening in the Montreal area and uh, really kind of began uh, a springboard into uh, entry into private equity that was taking place in Montreal. And then, of course, uh, once I left university, actually dropped out of university, I took my uh, small business that I had in Canada, and then I switched that over to Beijing. So that was from shoe shining, networking, and then uh, off to uh, doing some uh, consultancy in Beijing. Wow, that's fascinating and a great pivot, as we would say today. So correct me if I'm wrong, but when you were working in China, you were focused on investment in renewable energy, right? So you weren't necessarily starting out the way a lot of people do in the energy space on the more sort of engineering side, but you were focused on the money. Do I have that right? <laughs> yeah, that's true. But it's not, not. I mean, renewables was one client, but then uh, probably the bulk of my time was spent with a biotech company that was bringing about a new drug for small cell lung cancer. And uh, that uh, took on a, quite a bit of work for me in my early 20s before eventually it uh, kind of led me back to some work in infrastructure in Canada, working more as an analyst and on the financing end. And then, you know, eventually took a look at the investment background that I had, uh, but uh, followed a girl to Rwanda as things go. And uh, from that and finding myself in Northern Rwanda, clearly saw that investments to come into Rwanda for improving the economy really needed a kickstart in the uh, in the energy space as I think 60 to 70% of the national grid was reliant on diesel fuel and that no manufacturing processes, processing investments could ever take place without fixing the energy sector first. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. And so in Rwanda, so I'm guessing the girl you followed is your lovely wife, Fran. And did you ever plan to do work in Africa or did it just sort of happen to be that way? A little bit just happened to be that way. Actually, I, I expected my career to kind of take me back to, to Asia. Uh, certainly it's one of the fastest growing markets, but I certainly had a passion for impact and working in development countries and trying to use the financial skill set for tackling poverty. So needless to say, when the opportunity came across to come to Africa and certainly to Rwanda, it was a great place to start. I certainly had envisioned initially that I would have gotten into the microfinance or uh, into one of those subsectors. And uh, needless to say, found myself in energy and found myself you know, truly passionate about what energy can do. Yeah. Well, and interesting too would, would be to hear a little bit about the parallels, if there are any, that you see between working in China and working in East Africa. What did you notice in terms of the you know investment space or culture? Were there any consistencies or was it just a completely different world? I'd say not a completely developed, a different world. Kind of certainly a quick highlight is that China's emergence away from poverty certainly kind of drove at a very kind of core strategy of being able to attract FDI in, into the economy. And it did so with a robust investment into infrastructure. So their investments into roads, power, water, and these really kind of spearheaded a way to attract foreign capital in and was kind of a gateway for it coming in. And, and certainly when you looked at Rwanda um, doing an amazing job on certainly roads, water, and other infrastructure, it seemed that energy was lagging. And then, you know, uh, certainly 
when looking at what Rwanda's trajectory will be in becoming self-sustainable was uh, solving this uh, energy deficit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so is that what led to the development of what is now known as East Africa Power or is there another more circuitous route? I just wonder how you go from arriving in a country to within a few years time, building the largest solar plant in the country. So let's hear about that. Uh, sure. I, I love to share the entrepreneurial story. And I think it could be inspirational for some that are looking at, hey, you know, what can I get into? In being in Rwanda, and certainly seeing that the cost of power was, you know, very, very high, and that there was actually no private sectors participants that were really involved. There were three entrepreneurs at the time, uh, one Gregory Tai, Theo, and uh, Dr. Caleb King. And these three were, you know, getting, you know, significant subsidies from, from GIZ to try to pilot the private sector. There weren't really robust, conducive regulatory environments. And these three entrepreneurs were really amazing at starting to kind of demystify this opportunity. And what had happened was certainly being in the right place at the right time in a beautiful place, Musanzi, Rwanda, uh, gave the opportunity in the small network to come in as a project manager. And then as really the project director, helped to refinance, uh, to restructure, to bring the bank financing, to complete the designs, to working from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. on an accelerated schedule to try to you know get this plant up and running. And it's amazing to think that the largest private sector project in Rwanda at the time was slightly less than half a megawatt. So by turning the lights on at that time and being able to employ 1,300 people with me in the, in the leadership team was just an unbelievable experience. And then, of course, it was just kind of a, a small dent towards what the private sector could do. But uh, at that time, I had you know ordered all the books online about how to build micro hydropower plants. And uh, from a little bit of learning, a little bit of networking enabled us to kind of kickstart our development business and seeking for more chasing waterfalls, as I like to put it, around Rwanda. <laughs> and not just us, but what was you know great and inspirational. There are so many wonderful Rwandese companies that were also kind of gearing and coming into the sector. So the more that we were able to move forward, the more other uh, developers were able to come alongside too. There's a lot of like cross learning that was taking place in the sector. And yeah, so when 2014 came along, there was no you know, significant size of uh, solar power plants anywhere in East Africa. And uh, while we had been taking a small role within helping to find finance, our role was really the local EPC contractor for Skatec, our partner out of Norway. And what kind of began from just bidding on the project to do the initial works led us to kind of completing that within about eight weeks. Then we were asked to partner with a German company called Edematech. And through that kind of EPC and learning, we were able to do the electrical mechanical installation. And then Skatech asked us to come back and say, hey, I know you've done the work, but can you provide the maintenance on the plant? And well, it can't be too complicated. We cut the grass and wash the panels and fix the substation and the trackers when needed. And you know that was eight years ago. <laughs> so well, what started from actually doing a lot of the EPC and hands-on work kind of spilled our way kind of backwards to like bring in additional capital and investments into building a, a portfolio of uh, small hydropower projects. And of course, those eventually kind of came along to being developed and uh, financed and constructed and built. And um, yeah, so that's kind of what's brought EAP to where it is today. 
Well, and it's interesting too, when you see the thread of how important it is to have skills in finance to bring the force that's needed to really end energy poverty. And, uh, you know, I guess I'm curious about that. There's so many companies that are in this space now. And what do you think has made the difference for EAP? Why have you been able to I guess, achieve such scale, be in so many countries and have such a diversity of types of sizes of systems you work with? Because normally you don't see that. You see, you know, people who focus in just, you know, one specific particular kind of mini grid or, you know, or you just see utility scale. You don't really see that mix. And so could you talk a little bit about what's really been your secret sauce and maybe why that distinction exists in other companies, but not in yours, between large scale and uh, more community scale? There's several others in the in the industry who are, who are who are doing well at managing a portfolio, but certainly this kind of, you know, speaks volumes into the need for diversification to survive <laughs> as a business in this space. It's, you know, it's quite challenging because of the, you know, different attitudes in different markets towards IPPs. And of course, sometimes PPAs or other kind of steps in the regulatory process get put on hold at times. And so if you don't have that diversification across uh, different markets and geography, and or if you run up to a place where, you know, if all of your eggs are in one basket, projects you're developing and there's no need for that power or there's no need for that power at the price that is viable, then you'll find yourself as a development company in a very, very difficult space. So I think it, you know, when we look at how we've been able to go from, you know, just a small handful of projects under management to quite a large portfolio now across uh, 10 countries in hydro and solar is that done this quite intentionally because we know that it takes yeah, it can take five to seven years to develop a utility scale business. And that's just the reality of uh, what this business is. And, and you actually need to expect at times that the partner and the client that you have will come back and continually ask to have that as being more affordable power. And really, this is where I'd say EAP just has a long-term perspective where delivering affordable, reliable, <laughs> clean power is really a long-term business. And we take that you know, in mind. And, and certainly this kind of probably draws into this perspective of what our view is on smaller projects. So even though our kind of target size or a sweet spot, certainly like the one to 10 megawatts, that uh, smaller projects or mini projects that are between, you know, 100 to, to, to one megawatt are also quite viable. And although it's sometimes the same overhead and process to do them, but they can be quite strategic for entering into markets which are just a little bit more challenging. So we love the frontier market. Um, and uh, sometimes on the frontier markets or the more frontier markets that have less of a conducive regulatory environment, sometimes it's better to start with minis or smalls. And it gives an opportunity to better understand the business environment, the risks that are at play, and to build uh, good relationships there. So that's a bit on the mini side. And of course, now we've got quite a portfolio of those that are a bit more medium size, um, you know, sub 50 megawatts still. And uh, in those ones, we look at more opportunities and then uh, sometimes on a kind of request basis from the client. And I would just say that the future 
for us really is where we see our portfolio of projects we're developing split between commercial and industrial clients and, uh, and the utilities. And of course, around each project, as you had mentioned, we, we are very passionate about energy access for all. And so that being said, there's a need to build up and provide uh, good quality energy in and around these plants. And so having an expertise in operating mini grids and uh, being on the transmission distribution side is a necessity for our long-term CSR as a business. Well, and that's one of the things that I've always admired about the way you structured your company as well, is that you do have a real focus on giving back. So while many would stop at it's enough to provide power to some of these peri-urban and rural areas, you are also focused on creating additional value and benefit for the communities that you either operate in or employ people. And I just think that's so admirable, especially for such a comparatively young company. But, you know, I I do notice that out of anyone in this whole realm of people involved in the Utilities 2.0 pilot, you're probably one of the, the most fascinating people to speak with because you have worked on both sides of the wires, if you will. You really understand in your bones and in your operations the need for both kinds of energy and now the chance to bring them together in a way, centralized and decentralized through this pilot, is you know, certainly a, a something whose time has come. But a lot of people are talking about integrated energy and and I think there's a lot of interpretations about what that means, everything from planning to, you know, something much smaller than larger. And it's just a, a lot of, I guess, sort of dialogue going on about what it actually means. And so I'd be interested to hear from you how you would define integrated energy and, and what you see the real potential being of achieving integrated energy. Great. Well, I think you've teed this one up quite nicely. I mean, it's quite obvious that the grid being centralized and moving its way out, especially being financed by uh, the utilities, which are struggling to stay afloat and profitable, but to be reliant on the grid working from a centralized perspective going out only is not a viable possibility for us to hit, you know, SDG 7. This is where there's a very nice opportunity through learnings, such as from like this pilot and others, where you can have uh, successfully operating mini grids, which can build its way in towards. And this integration is really the future of where energy is going. And, you know, the sustainability of such is to really have a number of proof of concepts and pilots that are done, which can show that there's uh, an ability to do energy trading and that when you're building mini grids, of course, there needs to be either an exit or a long-term business plan in mind. And certainly what's quite exceptional about this project, it begins with the end in mind. And uh, by showcasing how a number of different companies can come together and also benefactors uh, come together, it will kind of show in its learnings that this can be replicated. And it's not that this can be replicated one to 10 times, you know, there's thousands of opportunities, you know, within uh, East Africa, there's 10,000 opportunities that are not that far away. And certainly being able to have a viable business model where these are built, where there's a nice balance between the supply and demand of power that's brought in initially, where there's a, a clear integration of the grid when it arrives, and that there's a healthy process of that dialogue with the utility and with the clients, then the possibilities are endless. So this is a market 
that is maybe billions of dollars and it's being neglected uh, often because the business model hasn't been ironed out and that exit hasn't been ironed out. And what this pilot has done and will do and further pilots will do is showcase that there's a viable business here. Yeah. Well, and and so let's talk a a little bit about your specific role in the pilot. And uh, obviously, EAP is no stranger to taking innovation to heart. Uh, But I believe in this pilot, you are yourself piloting a fairly new approach to technologies and productive use. So could you talk a little bit about the Empower Pods and maybe, uh, you know, geek out a little bit on the technical side, but then let's also talk about what promise we see from the productive use point of view as well. So please, over to you, Dan. Sure. Well, I'll highlight that I won't be the one to geek it out completely on the technical side, but I, I think I can spell it out quite clearly why we're doing this. You know, it's really driven from our perspective of um, corporate social responsibility. And we are not only in this game and bringing investors and we're bringing in impact investors, of course, alongside our projects, because we really see the benefit of what power can do. And and certainly the viability of off-grid projects is clearly tied into the ability to bring in and and match the supply with the demand and to drive in uh, economics or microeconomics on the villages that we're involved in. So certainly EAP is very excited about this particular opportunity because from an innovation standpoint, we're able to roll out with the first containerized generation using hydropower with that in 2019. With that, doing the containerized generation is that we are also quite interested in the kind of business in a box, the containerized demand side. And of course, 95% of the projects that are in our existing portfolio are in rural villages where 95% of the surrounding population are sustenance farmers and often 50% of their agricultural produce goes to waste by the time it hits market and often the farmers themselves are taken advantage of from traders and so if developing and thinking about village life in abundance how do we keep money in that microeconomy and what can a power plant do that is just beyond power. So certainly the interest to focus on the kind of drying, milling, threshing, cooling, and uh, clean water as containerized businesses is one that we have been investing into. And we believe that this is a great point of innovation. And we have a number of different pilot projects upcoming where we're looking to roll out more of these and uh, and kind of accelerate the uh, processing and development of agricultural produce in and around our power plants. Yeah, well, there's certainly no better time than this year with the focus at the UN, at least on the first ever food system summit. And certainly with partners like you, Power for All is, is working to raise awareness of the important role that decentralized renewable energy can play in driving productivity and, and quite frankly, you know, equalizing access to, you know, some of the tools that, that others should, should have access to and shouldn't be limited by not being tied to a grid. So on that, you know, just tying back to your original roots in finance, it occurs to me that with something like Empower Pods or any productive use appliance, financing is an important part of that. So can you talk to the role of financing to supplement what you've created with the technology? 
Great question. The empower pods, I mean, as an entrepreneur, I've always been an entrepreneur. So thinking about the entrepreneurs in and around this power plant is that there's a always a need as an entrepreneur to thrive. You might have that technology, you might have that mindset, but it's like team opportunity and resources. Often you know exactly what the opportunity is. You have a team of people around you and you're lacking that resources or, or capital to, to make it happen. And so as an entrepreneur driving up, doesn't matter what level of finance you have, is that, all right, you're going to need to have affordable capital to make your business work. So, you know, let's take this right back to the village level is that for this village or, you know, that is around our, our projects in our conversations, especially when, when doing our scoping and our ESIAs, we build in relationships with local entrepreneurs. A lot of them are farmers and they are skilled. They have the, they know the technology that they want. They have the teams and people that they want and they lack that, you know, access to affordable capital. So certainly what we envision moving forward are, you know, relationships of kind of helping to bridge that gap of bringing affordable capital. And if there are successful entrepreneurs who are processing or doing ag processing around is that the entire ecosystem around the power plant can, can benefit greatly. And there's of course a significant brain drain of skills that are leaving the village level and running into cities. And I, and I think that making wealthy farmers and ag entrepreneurs in and around these power plants is a great way to have village life in abundance. Yeah, well said, well said. Well, listen, as we're just about to wrap up this podcast, you know, obviously there's a lot of hearts and minds uh, tracking what happens with the Twake Uganda pilot. And I'm curious, assuming all things prove out, what do you think is really needed to scale this concept of having holistic energy development? So not just bringing energy, but also bringing the benefits that take people beyond access and into productivity, into better quality of life. I'm curious, let's say a, a year from now when we do interconnect with the main grid and we have a full year of data understanding all the activities and how they've add up to the socioeconomic benefits that we hope to see. What then is needed on the other side of the equation? Assuming we prove this out, what do you think is needed to really replicate and scale this concept of holistic development that creates meaningful load and better lives for people all at once? <laughs> That's a pretty jam-packed question, Christina. Yes, it uh, is. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I mean, certainly on jumping to our end, it's like, okay, great. You know, what's worked with one pod is actually we, we view places that are on grid and off grid in trading centers where actually we should just set up the manufacturing set up for the empower pods in Uganda. We can do drying, milling, threshing. Let's add in cold storage. Let's add in made in Africa approach to these where you scale from instead of working one to 10 of these at the same time is actually there's a clear demand for a hundred of these or 500 or a thousand of these. And I really think over the next five to 10 years, that will be the reality and almost kind of like a hockey stick curve of the demand for these hitting the right price point and certainly getting the more scalable franchise model. And I mean, that's on, on our end. If you look at 
the experience for Equatorial Power, which has a number of different grids and uh, certainly helping them get access to more f- affordable capital and financing and more projects, um, they can certainly you know, get more of these done. And, and same thing with Energrow, uh, which has been part of this project. And certainly there's at least you know 10 to 20 other players where they can achieve scale and benefit from the learnings that are taking place. Even on our end, we're quite interested to do probably up to 10 projects along the western areas of of Uganda to do that in kind of containerized hydro as the generation point to mix it eventually with solar. Even on our end, you know, we could see 10 projects done, you know, where we're talking, you know, 50 to 100 million that would be needed to realize, you know, this number of grids, projects, and a combination of the generation and ag parks. And if we're one of 10 companies or one of 20 or 30 companies, it's quite clear that just within Uganda alone, there's, you know, a billion dollars worth of opportunities here on just this. And and so where there's lessons in Uganda, of course, those really should be kind of bridged and piloted in in the region and in other places. So what is the, the hopes for this pilot is really, it helps to trigger off a number of other pilots in other geographies. And um, some conversations do take place where this can be done at scale. Excellent. Okay. Well, Dan, it's just been such a pleasure talking with you. Thanks so much for making time. And and for all of those who have tuned in to listen to Dan Clink, just a further reminder that you can find a wealth of sector news analysis and data on our website, powerforall.org, and on our platform for energy access knowledge or PEAK. You can also sign up to receive our monthly newsletter. And as a reminder, Power for All is a 501c3 nonprofit organization. We depend on the generosity of listeners like you. To make a donation, please visit us at powerforall.org slash donate. And for now, that is the Power for All podcast. And thanks again for joining us.